Welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Gosowski here as usual with my favorite critic, Courtney Small. Hello, how are you today? Great. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Good. Okay, so Courtney and I are heading into the final weekend of hot dogs, as we know some of you are as well. And if you're not, listen up, you might want to be heading into the final weekend of hot dogs because a lot of films are having their second screening or you can catch them online. It, you know, a lot of choices still available. This is what's amazing about a hybrid documentary festival, about a hybrid festival, basically. So, Courtney, I think we've got a lot of stuff to do. So I think Courtney is going to start us off. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to mention one um, that I quite enjoyed. And it's, you, you know, with documentaries, sometimes we tend to just by nature go for a lot of like the heavy and, and serious works. But there's a film called Million Dollar Pigeons, which I think is absolutely delightful. I think it's a really charming crowd pleaser. And it's um, directed by Gavin Fitzgerald. And it's a film about the international pigeon racing industry and how pigeon racing went from a sport that was done that anyone could do, whether you were a king, queen, or a peasant, to becoming this really elitist, big money event. And this particular film focuses on um, a South African pigeon race. It's known as a, a one race event. And that's where people from all over the world send their pigeons in to be fed and trained all at the same facility. And then they have this race and the winner walks away with a million dollars. So um, the film follows pigeon financiers, um, which is basically like master pigeon owners uh, from Ireland, Canada, the United States, all over the world as they're training to compete and trying to get their pigeons into this event. And you see like certain individuals have way more money than others. So they're entering way more pigeons. It's a really fascinating film. And as quirky as it sounds, there's a lot of interesting and unique characters. But I think what I really loved about this film is that Fitzgerald treats all of his characters with a certain level of respect. Like there's a lot of humor in it. There's a lot of, I can't believe we're talking about pigeons. I can't believe they spent that much money on pigeons, but all of the individuals, regardless of whether they have egos or not, are, are treated with a, a level of respect that's really enduring and scandal erupts over the course of the film. Um, and how, and it actually, as the things unfold, you actually feel for a lot of the participants as they're navigating the scandal. So it's just a really delightful film. Um, that's Million Dollar Pigeons. I highly recommend it. It's it, it leaves you in a, a happy mood. It's just a really charming kind of, I can't believe I just watched that type of movie, but you'll, you're glad that you, you watched it. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got something that might be a cl- crowd pleaser in a different way. Okay. Um, it's bizarre, that's for sure. And um, it's one of these, uh, obviously it's a documentary, so it's one of these sort of, thrillers real life thrillers and that's that's the amazing thing is that this actually happened and what happened was that in 1985 someone cut a painting out of its frame in a museum it was willem de keening's woman ochre this famous painting and so it's been missing for 30 years and so this is the mystery of of how it turned up they tell you right off the bat how it turned up because this is the bizarre thing about it is that it turns out this couple had it 
in their home, in their home. They didn't sell it. That's the reason why nobody could find it for 30 years and it was missing. So this couple, they had it in their home and strangely and even more strangely, they had it behind a door. So only they could see it. You can't, when you went into their house and apparently they didn't have a lot of visitors. <laughs> only when they closed the bedroom door, could they see it? And they put it in some weird old, you know, Walmart frame, <laughs> just, just had it in their house. And it was discovered after uh, um, the man passed away first and then the woman. And so these people from this sort of antique shop came, you know, they were, they were charged with handling the estate sale and they were going through the house and one of them. And so you see interviews, right. With, with the, with these guys that they're like, wait a minute, this is sort of familiar. And wait a minute, this sort of doesn't match the other stuff in the house. Now the whole house was covered in sort of like other kinds of art and mostly, so, and mostly it was the man's uh, Jerry Alter's very terrible paintings that were <laughs> scattered throughout the house, right? Very derivative, very, you know. And so what, so this film, it uses reenactments and not always successfully. I have to say sometimes reenactments and maybe it's just me, I'm like a little bit fussy about my acting. Um, sometimes the reenactments don't quite work in, and it's not because it's taking away from the documentary form. It's just somehow like they, they just practically don't work. And in this case, it's, it's sort of teeters on that brink, but they sort of get away with it or the filmmaker, Alison Otto, she sort of gets away with it in this film because the actors sort of camp it up and you could tell they've been directed to camp it up. And it's because it's sort of one of these, can't believe this is so bizarre, but it's true kind of tales. So it's, yeah, this is oh, like- that sounds very life, interesting. Yeah, it's like a real life art world, mystery, thriller, campy i don't know it's like it's i can, i can imagine with an audience it would be a lot of fun and you also saw um, il posto do you want to talk about that one yes uh il posto is another it's a bizarre but it's a sadly true kind of a film like i would put it in that kind of category um it's mostly observational the situation is the part that's sadly true but um, unfortunately, like, really hard to believe, even though it's happening. And this is a situation in Italy, and I'm sure it's happening in a lot of places, but in Italy, to get a government job, to get a, a con not a contract job, but to get a government job as a nursing professional, you have to pass these tests. And they happen like in, in a certain place, at a certain time, and everybody like thousands of people go and they all sit down and only a few people get these positions and they're you'll post in english is a steady job so the reality is that most nursing professionals in italy are working on contract and contract means like no benefits no you know no no leave no nothing this is, you know, people desperate to try to get a stable position. And the the other unfortunate reality of it is that most of the people are coming from the southern part of Italy. So 
this this documentary makes real the situation that is happening for a lot of people there, which is finding steady work. Employ the employment rates are like through the roof in southern Italy, and people are like desperate to find something. Even someone who is employed in southern Italy or even in other parts of Italy, there's it's a reality that a lot of people are underemployed. So this film follows people. It follows this company that organizes these bus trips. Like people have to go overnight and then write the test in the morning um, and then go back home. That's the reality. They can't afford more time. They can't afford more money. The film is really uh, powerful in the way that we get to know the bus driver and the man organizing like this company, right? That we get to know them and uh, the struggles that they face because it actually turns out that the organizer is a nurse by training, but he can't, he hasn't been able to practice. So he started this company. And so then the pandemic hits and then reality, you know, the reality of the situation get like things get even more dire for everyone. And then, you know, as the film goes deeper and deeper, as a film progresses, we go deeper and deeper and people on the bus, like we start, you start, we start experiencing more intimacy with people, like the people really open up and we start to hear like, the reality of people's lives. It's really moving that way. Yeah. So that's Il Posto. And you, you know, who, who would think that this is happening? We don't really know about these things. Yeah. That's, um, you know, it sounds like a really emotional watch. Um, it reminds me of when I, th- I think you might've seen this one as well. Silent Beauty. Oh yeah. Um, by Jasmine Mara Lopez. And in, in this documentary, Miss um, Lopez is trying to come to terms with um, something that happened to her in her childhood. And the once happy memories have been overshadowed by sexual abuse uh, at the hands of a, a trusted relative. And in her processing that and attempting to um, come to terms with what has happened, you start to see how um, the events from the past and her speaking up about it causes a rift in the family. Uh, And it's a really interesting film. It it shows how um, things have been, I guess, how the family is divided along gender lines, but also the impact that the abuse had because she learns that she wasn't the only one and her sister also suffered at the hands and like the impact it has on her sister and how it took her down a whole, a completely different path. So it's just a really fascinating um, film. It's, you know, it's tough to watch. It's, you know, there is a sense of hope, for for them moving forward but it's still a really um powerful film so that one is silent beauty and i I would definitely recommend that one and i I absolutely agree with you um silent beauty um it really what really struck me was the way that it creeps up on you and it it brings you in and in terms of the intimacy that i was talking about in posto this um Silent Beauty has a different kind of intimacy as well because she's sort of introducing us to her family through old 
footage and um, through old photographs and sort of telling her family story. And then this realization hits when she sees a picture of that, that person with one of the younger members of the extended family. And she thinks, wait a minute, I, I really have to talk about this now. And uh, so that, that her bravery comes out, you know, in what you were saying, her bravery comes out because yeah, she, she causes this giant rift, but what is so, uh, one of the things that's remarkable about the film is the way that she just keeps going, you know, that we hear, we hear her trying to confront this person and, you know, we hear him denying, we only hear that that's the most interesting thing. Wait till you experience this part that he's the denying and, and she just keeps going and she just keeps going. And then the way that she reconstructs the whole way that she goes through the, the entire family and just keeps insisting on bringing it up, no matter the resistance and how the resistance keeps coming up from this person or that person or that person. And in terms of, like, I was a little bit afraid of watching this film because I thought, you know, this is a very, very difficult subject and it, it could be very painful. But what struck me was the very lyrical way that she sort of interwove her family history into this personal triumph and, the way that she wove everything together in and out and past and present and audience member and her and family, you know, it sort of, it brought me in, in a, in a gentler way than I was expecting. I don't know if that makes any sense. But no, no, it, it does. And very powerful. Yeah. It, and it's interesting because when you're talking about how it interweaves the, the past and present, um, there's a film that, I think does it in such a unique way. That's also playing at the, the festival that I've been, I've been thinking about since I saw it and it's a very difficult film to even explain. And it's called this house. It's a Canadian film by um, Miriam Charles. And it essentially tells the story of a black teenager um, named Tessa who died um, in mysterious circumstances in her home in Connecticut. Uh, instead of doing the typical format of well, investigating what caused the death and the impact afterwards, Charles actually approaches it from the, the perspective of Tessa's spirit, essentially telling part of the story of what happened to her, but also reimagining portions of the film so that you get elements of the past but then you also get a almost like a what if future where the ghost of tessa is visiting her mother in reenactments and you're you're understanding the mother's grief and through their interactions and through some of the stylized reenactments that they have the film then touches on their family history in haiti as well as their family in montreal and especially around 1995 where the referendum was occurring you know like there's it it the film navigates the past the present and potential future in such a interesting and unique way and it's it's unlike anything i have seen at hot docs this year um partly because there, there's a lot of reenactments so it kind of blurs the line between what you expect from a traditional doc and something new it's not quite narrative filmmaking 
it's still documentary filming, but it's just done in such a interesting way. And then the way how it weaves the past and the present, and it's kind of a dreamlike experience. In many ways, it reminded me of when I first saw Daughters of the Dust, the Julie Dash film, and how the first time you watch that, that film has to kind of a wash over you. And then it kind of just festers in your brain. And, I, and I've been trying to think of like, how do I talk about this film to other people? And, and the more I keep thinking about that, I keep thinking about this movie. So clearly Charles has done something right because this film has not left my brain. And it's such a unique experience that I have not had in, in such a long time. So I, I highly recommend if you want a, a different experience, a different way of how some filmmakers approach the past. Um, I think this house is, definitely one that that you should watch you may not get it the first time it might be one that you have to watch multiple times but at least experience i think it's worth the experience yeah absolutely that sounds amazing Mm -hmm. um i know you saw one called sam now do you want to tell people about that one sam now is a really interesting film in the context of the conversation we've been having about families and family histories and mining the past and um the use of different ways of going back into the past and connecting it to the present. In this film, the filmmaker Reed Harkness is making a film about his half-brother, Sam. Sam's mother suddenly disappeared one day after a like, healthy relationship. Although she divorced the father, she had this healthy relationship with her kids, with the entire extended family, but just simply vanished. Nobody talked about it. Sam was maybe early teens. He was, he was always bouncy. And that's the reason why he and Reed, although Reed was seven years older, he and Reed had this already like budding filmmaking uh, career, like relationship. They would make films. They would have adventures, even when Sam was little. Um, So as a way of process, helping Sam process this, because Reed could see that Sam wasn't processing this, he suggested that they go on an adventure and film it, do one of their adventure films, and go in search of Sam's mother. So this is an attempt to get him to deal with this. And in some ways, to to do something, because... As the film progresses, Reed gets more and more frustrated with the fact that nobody spoke about this disappearance. Nobody acknowledged it. Nobody spoke about it. Nothing. What this film does so expertly by going back and using all this old footage and intermixing it with new footage of what's happening now and giving us this context and really showcasing this family. and And it's amazing how everyone just sort of is free with the camera. Like they're, they're open with the camera because it's either their son or their brother or, you know, and just this access that this filmmaker has to this family that really gets it to the core of the whole issue of families and how they function and communication and, and the whole issue of family closeness is a family really close. If no one is talking about vital things that happen if no one's really acknowledging problems you know they are they you hear them talk about being a tight-knit family but you start to see 
how that's being challenged in the film. And then you start to see how people in the film themselves start to um, come to terms with that, come to terms with themselves in their relationship to that, in their relationship to the, that central event that happens and what happens when they find Sam's mother and then the things that happen after that. So it's like, yeah, it's an emotional roller coaster ride for sure. I, I highly recommend this one to, to people because I think this one will really, we're all, we're all part of a family at some point, at least one. No, no, that's good. And it actually segues, segues perfectly um, into a film that I saw. And I, I think you watched it as well, Meeting Points. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of the films playing from the Made in Chile um, spotlight section. And it's a really good film um, by Roberto um, Beza. And the, the documentary follows two filmmakers um, Alfredo Garcia and Paulina Costa, who are essentially making a film about their fathers. And their fathers met while being imprisoned um, for basically standing up against the dictatorship of the um, Pinochet regime. And even though they were only together for maybe 15 to 20 days, they created such a powerful bond of friendship that it linked their families together. So when both Alfredo and um, Paulina were, they were essentially babies when their fathers were taken. So they both didn't grow up um, with their fathers for a large portion of their lives. And then unfortunately for Alfredo, his father was killed by and the body was never found whereas paulina at least got her father back so as they are going about making this film you see as they're casting um they're they're auditioning actors for the parts but then they're also talking to alfredo's mother getting her um opinion on what happened and stories but you're also getting paulina's dad who was there with alfredo's father and experienced the the hardship of being in prison He's also telling his story. So there's multiple layers to this film within a film. And I found it worked really well. Like there's something really powerful about seeing actors reenact something on stage and then having the director and the directors watching and getting emotional, but then also seeing the real life people who are watching this production of their lives and they're getting emotional because they're all reliving and like everything is hitting the right emotional beat and i know it sounds like a heavy film but there's also a a lot of joy in it you know as they're trying to dig through the past you also get tales of like love like how the you know each man how they fell in love with this particular woman they had families and that choice that you have to make of do you stand up for your country and by doing so help your family or do you stick with your family and go down a completely different path um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a really fascinating film that I, I think works on, on several layers. It's just a, a really interesting film. Yeah, I absolutely agree with, with what you said. I just want to add, yeah, it, further to what you were saying about wh- with the reenactments. I, I, this is one of the few films where the reenactments uh, really hit home. Like I said at the beginning, like a lot of the times reenactments don't 
don't hit the mark. They're, they're somehow just not, they don't work for me. But in this case, um, the way the care that was taken, the way the actors take such care, but I also, like you said, those moments where not only is the director directing the actor, but the, in, the, the person that that actor is portraying or, yeah, or the person like the, in the case of the Alfredo Sr., when the when Alfredo Jr.'s mother is reacting to him and, you know, the, the real people that are involved are involved in these reenactments are, and are emotionally entwined in it. And their, their re reactions are so con conveyed so vividly. And in fact, sometimes there are times when that we're in a reenactment and the camera goes to one of the real pe people's faces and we experience it through that. Like there is, that's a kind of connection that I, I rarely have, like you can connect to a documentary subject and you can connect to a documentary, but to connect to people that are in the past like that so closely, it, it, it kind of reminds me of what Chase Joint does, you know, with mm -hmm. the recreations and the reenactments. But in this case, there was this, this extra, yeah, because of, because of the, the subject matter and just the poignancy of what was going on, um, it, it was uh, really strong. This is a, a brilliant film, meeting point, yeah. Um, to switch gears slightly, I know you saw a film that early on in Hot Dogs audience seemed to really be connecting with um, Batata. Do you, you want to talk a, a bit about that one? Oh, yeah, Batata. Um, Batata is amazing in the way that it follows a family over the course of 10 years. And it's a family, it, they're Syrian migrants. And uh, what happens is that they, at the beginning of the film, they go into Lebanon to work. as And they've, they've been doing this for years and they go into Lebanon to work. And then as they do this yearly, eventually the war in Syria happens and they're stuck. Now they're, they're refugees. And this is like how it develops over time how the situation and then how the crisis develops over time. And um, it's mostly from this one woman's point of view. She's, she's, she's not technically the matriarch, but she sort of made the matriarch from our point of view because she seems to take care of everybody. She seems to be the youngest sister of all. Um, and it's, it's kind of tragic because She's taking care of everybody. She's having a really hard time. But like she's even saying, like, nobody, none of my elder siblings are involved. They don't care. They, you know, like she's she doesn't have children. So she's having a really hard time of it. But as as you start to see, the whole situation gets more and more desperate for everyone involved. And it's not without it. Like, I'm not saying that this is like this desperate, horrible thing. It really brings um, the crisis to a point for us, to a point where really it, it captures what's going on for us. It really makes it come to life in terms of like you get to know real people over time, over the course of this documentary. And um, 
in a lot of ways, it's sort of got this verite, like this very intimate quality to it. And so we, we form these attachments and we form these bonds. And then, you know, as children grow older and then suddenly there's more children. And, but um, they also have this special relationship with the farmer that hired them in Lebanon. And then what happens over time with that? And in terms of people under these, these types of conditions, um, there's, there's amazing things that happen. You know, you, you get to see in times of war, the good in people, you get to see the bad in people. And it's like, it sounds cliched, but it's, it really is so heartbreaking, but, and heartwarming at the same time. Um, oh, it's, it's a very powerful film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you want to briefly talk about our memory belongs to us? Yes. Our memory belongs to us. Uh, oh, this I don't know if uh, this one is a really hard one. I found this one really difficult. It's about uh, a group of Syrian journalists. Well, citizen journalists, right? They didn't want to, they don't want to be part of the revolution. They didn't want to be part of any rebellion. They didn't want to document anything, but there they were, they were at a protest, each of them individually, they were at a protest. The protest got ugly. Government, they thought the government was firing rubber bullets. Turns out that's not what was happening. They started filming. Next thing you know, they are themselves, you can hear their reactions to that footage. And what happens with this film is that the filmmaker, Rami Farah, he reunites these three men who have now escaped Syria and puts them into this like empty theater and projects their footage on screen. So they took this footage, um, smuggled it out. Now here it is, they're watching it for the first time and they're watching it together. They, they haven't seen each other, you know, and they're going through the process of what happened starting on that day when suddenly they realized that the people were not just injured around them, but dead. Uh, and so there we are with them and there, there it is projected on this giant screen and they're right there in front of it. And th- they were responding in meeting point to reenactments. These men are responding to their footage of, of some of the things that, uh, that they ended up shooting. And, and it's really interesting when they d- describe how suddenly it was like, we didn't, we didn't think of it at the time, but we had to do it. And, and the process of going from observer to suddenly being an active participant because you know that someone must answer for these unexplained deaths, for these innocent deaths and how things progress. And, and what happens with the film, it's, like, it's, it's hard to say this about a film that is this difficult to watch, but sometimes it's like, I really wish you weren't all just standing in front of the screen. You know, I really wish there was like some other interplay with the images, cross-cutting or something. But in the end, um, their responses and they're real. They're, it's just like it's just like meeting point. The, the responses, we experience it through them. And that's the most important aspect of the film is that, you know, really getting us to understand what this situation was like, is like, and still, you know, continues 
continues to be and what it's like for all those people still stuck in Syria and all, all those people displaced from Syria. Yeah, that sounds um, really powerful. I'm going to mention a film, um, slightly different theme, but I think it it's also interesting film because it, it shines light on um, something that I don't think many people realize is occurring, um, but more people need to be aware of. And it's the Canadian documentary called Category Women. Um, it was directed by Phyllis Ellis. And in this particular film, it looks at female athletes. Um, and the, the jumping off point is the 18-year-old um, South African runner, Caster Semenya. And Caster was just a dominant um, athlete when she burst out onto the scene. But people start to question whether or not she was really a woman, whether or not she had high testosterone levels. Um, and what this documentary does is that it not only exposes how um, gender and, and racism have always been used to kind of hold women back when they excel. So they use the example of like, you know, you would never question if Michael Phelps or Usain Bolt have too much testosterone. We just praise them for being phenomenal athletes. But whenever a woman really outshines the field, then there are questions. And as this documentary shows, the questions usually arise if it's a woman of color. Once in a while, a white woman might be questioned. They showed like back in, I think it was the 1940s, one of the earlier Olympics, there was an individual that there was questions on not whether she was a woman. And the IOC did their own quote unquote test, which is essentially just violating a woman's right to privacy to prove that she was a woman. And, you know, she had the female parts. Now, as society has evolved, you realize that you can't just deem someone a woman by you know, the XX, XY chromosomes anymore. Um, but this film shows how a lot of the sports organizations, um, in, including the International Amateur Athletics Federation, the IAAF, are abusing their power and are not only forcing um, women from around the world, particularly women of color, to be violated by various inappropriate tests, a lot of them are being tricked into having surgeries to reduce their testosterone, um, surgeries that are impacting them physically, leaving mental scars. And then often when they have these surgeries, they're, they're essentially discarded. It's like they don't follow up. So the surgeries are, in some ways are a way of physically removing them from the competitive field. And as they try, as these women are trying to fight these unjust practices, the system is designed in such a way that the checks and balances aren't being met. So the IAAF essentially get to kind of do what they want because no one has the, the leg wants to do the legwork or, or, or they're not equipped to, to deal with such matters yet. The IAAF and the people that are part of that organization seem to find different ways to violate these women without any, real repercussions. So it's a, it's a really fascinating 
film, it, it, it really makes you look at the world of sports and especially when it comes to gender in a interesting light. And I, I think it's just a, it's an interesting film because it's a subject that I did not really know much about and I didn't realize it was as rampant as it is. Um, do you want to talk about hunting impacts? I know you saw that one. Yes. Speaking about women's issues, Hunting in Packs is a film, a Canadian film by Chloe Sosa Sims. And she's following three different female politicians. Uh, she goes beyond the usual, you know, what's it like being a woman and a politician? Goes beyond those kinds of questions, although it starts with that. But, you know, it, once it gets going and gets into the nitty gritty, things get really interesting. Um, because she's chosen three really interesting women. She's following Jess Phillips in the UK. She's a Labour Party member. She's following Pramila Jayapal in the US. She's a Democrat. Also one of, uh, what did Trump call them? The squad. The squad. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're commonly um, known as, as, as part of the squad. In his dismissive way, he said that, yeah. Okay, so it looks so. What what uh, what the filmmaker does is that she focuses on what each woman is herself focused on. Um, for example, Jess Phillips in the UK, she was instrumental in putting together a bill about giving more rights to women uh, that were in, in uh, domestic abuse cases, right? giving them more power and taking it away from abusers. And of course, Pramila Jayapal of the US, she is instrumental in fighting for Medicare for all. Um, Michelle Rampal Garner, she's really, really embedded in sort of Western politics and this sort of notion that uh, the pipeline must go through and that Alberta is suffering and uh, will continue to suffer even more because of um, the decisions of the liberal government. So, you know, sort of there's this back and forth and back and forth. But like I said, the film's strength is when it focuses on each woman and lets each woman tell us her passion, lets us into that space where we get to feel that passion and we get a sense of that passion of what keeps her going, of what drives her. And that of course is something that is the most interesting part of anyone who's devoted their lives. I mean, I know they're getting paid to do this. They, it's their job now, you know, they're not activists, they're not idealists, but they start in some ways, they, they have this idealist bent, all of them. And so this is what keeps them going. And through, through ups and downs that are happening politically throughout the film and the things that they have to face up against. And um, Jayapal, I mean, she's, she's got a, a, that added pressure of being, you know, she's got a couple of added pressures. You know, she is looked upon in a, in a different way because she's brown woman and because she is looked upon as one of the progressives so it's not just something that Trump sort of dismissed her on. It was some, it's something that her own party is having trouble with, you know, that they're sort of seeing 
there's people are sort of looking at the Democrats and say, well, there's this split happening and what are we going to do? And, you know, things like that. So, yeah, there's a there's a lot going on in in the film and the, all of the, the film does not go as deep as I would have loved it to. It it certainly wet my appetite for for to really want to pursue and really pay attention more to what these women and other women in politics are doing. You know? mm-hmm. That's uh, that sounds um, interesting. I, I, I'm always up for a, a political doc. So before we wrap up, um, do you want to talk about a marble travelogue? And then I, I'll have one other one that I can talk about quickly. So I want to end on uh, a film that touches on the bizarro as well. This one encompasses political and social implications. And it's just uh, a weird thing that's just going on. And weird in in the sense that I'm going to end up, I'm going to start off talking about marble and I'm going to end up talking about fridge magnets. A marble travelogue literally starts with a big slab of marble. And we find ourselves in a quarry in Greece. And this bunch of marble blocks, they end up going to China. And when we're in China, we meet people. Uh, We meet a sculptor. And we meet, you know, a bunch of people who are trying to, well, make money we we get to know some factory workers who are working with sort of the the dust from the marble making and so they they end up making this kind of plaster and making souvenirs and that's how we get into fridge magnets but also we somehow end up talking about the relationship between the greek and the chinese economies so as we, we learned that, that, that as China d- is developing, there's more of a middle cl- class that's growing. And this middle class wants something to invest in. And so that's why there's more need. There's more of a market for sculptures, for example, you know, um, knockoffs of Western sculptures, of Greek sculptures. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of, you know, implications. There's there is this man who, yes, has set up shop and set up this factory in China, making these souvenirs, these fridge magnets, right? But as well, we meet this couple of twin Greek young ladies who are ambassadors between Greek Greece and China, and they want their mission is to foster. In interrela- a business interrelationship, things get, for me, they got a little bit bizarre. These, these two women are like a little bit like Instagram models. They're, they're sort of presenting themselves like Instagram influencers. Influencers, yep. Yeah. So these there are these interrelationships between the two countries. And then there's this like larger global conversation about what's happening that obviously spreading beyond just those two countries. And it all centers on the fact that there is this growing middle class in China. They have money and more influence. And yeah, 
they want to, they just, they want to stretch their wings and do something. So, and then there's this whole market there and, um, and what's happening with the market in China and how it's changing. But there are also environmental impacts that the film explores in a really, really interesting way in terms of the, the mining of marble. So I know I didn't make it sound as exciting as. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, no, there's just this a, a, this is like this, a lot going on in that one. <laughs> What's that? It sounded like there was yeah. a lot going on in that film. <laughs> yes, there's a lot going on. And it's one of those films where you're just kind of agog. It's like, where are we going next? <laughs> it's like, holy cow, this works. It's like, well, oh, my God. I will. Just, um, oh, my God. I can't believe we're going here. <laughs> <laughs> I will piggyback off your environmental theme. And I will um, talk about. All of our heartbeats are connected through exploding stars. And if you think that's a long title, there are several docs this year that are competing for um, the longest title award. But this film by Jennifer Rainsford is an actually really interesting documentary that looks at the 2011 tsunami that happened in Japan. And it looks at the the aftermath, um, the impact on the environments, you know, you see archival footage of like houses being washed away, but they're being washed away in almost like a sea of sewage and just garbage and how a lot of the beaches are littered garbage. And, you know, the, the water um, eroded a lot of the land. So it took years for even plants to grow. So you have that really fascinating um, environmental aspect to it. You see the horrors, like there's one image of a, of a van or I think it was a van out racing the floodwaters that just is imprinted in my brain. It's just such a fascinating moment. Um, even though it's such a, a tragic occurrence that, that happened, but then the film also drifts into survivor's guilt um it talks to people who lost loved ones and are dealing with that but then it also talks about like the plankton that's that's in the water now and octopus like it, it goes various paths um a lot of them are fascinating there's a couple of threads that didn't quite work for me um you know there's almost like a dreamlike aspect to the film so you have this kind of epic disaster environmental film and then something a little more nuanced and dreamlike within this whole psychological aspect so there's a lot of different balls being juggled a lot of it is interesting i just don't know if it all works um, but the parks that do work are fascinating and like the the close-ups of like some of the underwater creatures i found absolutely fascinating um there was times where i wasn't sure how it all connected but it was still just great to look at uh, so it is one that I would recommend, but I just warn that, you know, it doesn't all fit together nicely, but there's a lot that you can learn from it. But, but I would argue it kind of has this philosophical way of just showing us that everything is connected. Yep. Yep. That is true. I mean, I know that's, that sounds reductive and limit limiting and, you know, but it's not. It's sort of. It's sort of. Sometimes it's nice to think that things don't always make sense, but 
it all somehow fits together. Mm -hmm. And it also, you know, at the end, it still reminds you that we need to treat the earth better um, because you said because of the connections, we don't necessarily think of how even the smallest connections have an impact on our lives, but it, it, it really does. Yeah, it reminded me of, of a doc that uh, is going to be at Cannes called All That Breathes. And uh, it was at Sundance. And it was about how, you know, the smallest thing, the smallest bugs connect up to human activity and vice versa. And when I was watching this one, I just sort of felt like this is in the same vein. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's got a different kind of plane or playing field, plane of existence. but still still kind of in this it's philosophically the same yeah yeah well it's definitely a a lot of um different films so if those who want the philosophical works you've got that those who want the more heart-wrenching films or the joyous ones hot dogs has it all this year absolutely yeah don't forget that some of the films that you've been hearing about or that you've just heard about here Uh, If you missed the first screening, there's a second screening and or it's online. So lots still to see at Hot Dogs 22. For Courtney Small, I'm Barbara Gosevsky. Thanks for listening.